So some time ago, we started a series called Discovering God's Will Together. And we spent the first part of that series taking a look at engaging the personal spiritual disciplines that I think the scripture calls us to, like engaging in prayer and engaging in the scripture. And then we moved on after that to talking about coming together in unity, because in unity we get a clearer picture of what God is doing. And then we started a series specifically, a mini-series of this about discernment, and that's sort of where we are. A couple of weeks ago we had our first message on discernment, and this morning we're going to have our second one. So I'm inviting you to turn with me, either in your Bibles or your attention to the screen, to a passage in 1 Samuel. It's in the third chapter. Some of you are familiar with this passage, but it, it is the Lord's calling to Samuel. And the author writes, The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, just as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is is listening. Some of you have had the opportunity, the privilege, to travel abroad. And while some people crave the adventure of going it alone, a guide can be very helpful. When traveling Israel and through Turkey and through Greece, Having a guide, someone who has been there before, someone who knows the land, was a significant asset. The guides I have experienced have been amazing. They know where the land is. They know where to go. They know how to avoid the lines. They know how to get to places that most tourists never get to see. They know the history. They know the context. They know the answers to your questions. And best of all, they know how to get back to where you started when you think you're lost may cost a little bit more, but it's worth it. Ever wonder what it would be like if we had guides in other parts of our life besides travel? Like, if you were dating, wouldn't it be great to have a guide who would say, this one, mm, not that one? 
Go here. Yeah, don't go over there. Say this. <laughs> don't say that. Or if you got into an argument with your spouse, something, by the way, I know very little about, <laughs> wouldn't it be wonderful to have a guide? Just when you're about ready to say how much she looks like her mother, guide would say, yeah, don't go there. We make key decisions all the time. Making a bad decision can have very damaging results. Wouldn't it be great if we had a reliable guide that would be able to get us through those twists and turns of life? And the Bible says, we do. The Bible has some very remarkable names and ideas and pictures for us of this guide. On some occasions, he is called Redeemer or Creator or Judge or Comforter. The Bible reminds us that our God is experienced. He guided Abraham to a brand new land. He guided Israel out of bondage and into their promised land. There is a well-known psalm that begins like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths. Our God is a guiding God. But his, his guidance sometimes seems confusing to us. I mean, how do we learn what his guidance is? How can we be sure that that guidance is from God? Why do some people seem to discover God's guidance so easily and other people seem to struggle with it and there are still other people who are convinced they have never ever heard a word from God? Why is it that some faith traditions talk about God's guidance a lot and some faith traditions never seem to mention it at all? What if we could learn to recognize when God is speaking, to hear what God is saying, would be helpful. The process of intentionally seeking God's guidance, that is his directive will, is known as discernment. It is a process that every God follower should follow, should know and practice. It is a process every faith community should be familiar with and practice. So a few weeks ago, we introduce the idea of discerning God's will together by noting three basic facets of God's will. First, we said there is God's decreed will. This is his sovereign will. This is the will when God speaks it, it happens. God said, let there be light. Boom, there was light. Second, we noted there is God's desired will. That is, God commands us to do certain things, but then God entrusts the responsibility of actually doing them to us. And sometimes we do it, and sometimes we don't. And then third, we talked about God's directive will, that is, his guidance and his assistance in pursuing his preferred will for us. We used the word direction a few weeks ago instead of guidance because it started with a D to go with all the others, but it's the same thing. 
We noted that God provides his direction, that is his guidance, when we ask for it, when we seek it. He promises when we seek, we will find it. And the more we seek it together, the clearer it becomes. And so after that service, we passed out pieces to a puzzle. And the more pieces we put together, the clearer that puzzle picture becomes. And looking at the puzzle picture in the back, we're doing a pretty good job with it. Seeking God's guidance, seeking his leading, is a common, universal quest. People cast lots. They lay out fleeces. They listen to donkeys. That one's in the Bible. They fast. They dream. They go on retreat. They climb cacti. They crawl up cathedral steps. Many people read books. So I checked. Amazon currently lists over 38,000 titles related to spiritual discernment. And I haven't read them all yet. Of those I have read, I have yet to find one that offers a few easy steps to figuring out what God wants. Discernment is hard work. That's why it falls under the umbrella of a spiritual discipline. The elusive quest to know God's will can be for some wonderfully freeing and for others a heavy-handed, rigid, even fear-producing process. To a certain extent, God's will for our life is fairly clear. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, love one another. In other issues, God's guidance seems a whole lot less clear. God's will is not primarily, please understand, about whether you should take the job in Hudsonville or in Holland. It's not whether you should marry Jane or Jasmine. It's not whether you should attend Georgetown or some other church, although that one should be fairly easy. God's will is that we should become the person God has created us to be, our true self in Christ. But what does that exactly that mean, or what does that look like? God's will is not primarily about whether the worship on Sunday morning should start at 9.30 or at 10, or we should sing mostly contemporary or mostly traditional music, or we should have color or black and white bulletins. No, God's will is that we should be missional, transformational people that he has called us to be, making more and better disciples for Jesus Christ. But again, what does that exactly look like? What does that mean? And so we joined the quest to discover God's guidance, God's will. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament that we've just read about a little boy called Samuel. He was the answer to his mother's desperate prayer to have a child. And so in her desperation, she promised that if God would give her a child, she would give that child back to God for his service. And God gave her a child, and she gave him back. The text we read tells us that one day the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel thought it was his supervisor. He thought it was Eli, but it wasn't. God called Samuel a second time, and again, Samuel thought it was Eli, but it wasn't. God called Samuel a third time, and again, Samuel went to see Eli, assuming it was Eli that called, and then... Only then, three times, if you will, then, Eli recognized it was God calling Samuel. And so he told Samuel how to go about listening to God. He said, 
When that happens and when you hear that, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And Samuel learned what all followers of Jesus need to learn. He learned how to listen for God. You see, God speaks. Samuel knew that he was being spoken to, but he didn't know it was God. He had to learn to recognize God's voice. You and I, too, need to learn to listen for and recognize God's voice. So you look at your son or your daughter. They're sleeping quietly, and your heart fills with love. You can't imagine how you could ever be mad at them. When they're awake, you can imagine. When they're sleeping, not so much. And the thought passes your mind of God saying to you, Doug, that's how I look at you when you're sleeping, with a heart of love. Was that really God? I can't prove it, but it sounds like something God would say. When life is challenging and you could really use a word of encouragement and then you meet an old friend in the grocery store or you get a high five from a student or you get an invitation from someone to go to lunch or you get a note in the mail, was that God? I can't prove it, but it certainly sounds like something God would do. You see, the main purpose of listening for God is not that you and I can step back and say, hey, everybody, do you know what happened? God spoke to me. No, the main purpose in listening for God is that we might then do what God is prompting us to do. And when we do, that is when we step closer in obedience to God, his voice becomes a little clearer. And the more we're obedient the clearer it becomes, just like the puzzle. On the other hand, if we're disobedient and we ignore it, we step away from God. And every time we're disobedient and we don't listen, we step away farther so his voice becomes dimmer and dimmer. So you might wonder, how do I know a prompting is from God? The first filter is, does it sound like God? You see, God's guidance never contradicts his scripture, his desired will. So when someone might say to you, God told me to do this, but it's really what they wanted to do because what they're saying totally contradicts what God has said in the scripture, it's not from God. God never contradicts himself. Second filter is, does it sound like something God would say to me? Are the promptings of God's spirit in line with the gifts that the spirit has given to me? So God, God is not going to ask me to go and stand on my head by a slush machine at the 9-11 because he knows I couldn't do it if I wanted to. God is going to ask us to sing in the choir if we can't carry a tune. He's not going to ask us to make a significant contribution if we're struggling to feed our family. He's not going to say we need to be in the NBA or the WNBA if we're four foot 11. The third filter, does it lead me in the direction of servanthood? If the sole and primary beneficiary of what I'm hearing is me, it's probably not from God. God calls us to downward mobility. He calls us to take up our cross. 
He calls us to serve one another. So what is my role in discovering God's will, in finding his guidance, in discerning his leading? Active listening. Active listening. Second, choosing surrender. Many people assume that pursuing God's will is a lot like making New Year's resolutions. First, we sort of realize we need to make some changes. We need a little more exercise or a little more praying or a little less eating or a little less anger or whatever it might be. And we decide we're going to make that change. And after deciding, we summon from within all of our willpower and our determination because because what we've decided to do is not something we really want to do or we would have been doing it before. But we need to do this because we think it's going to be good for us. And, And this willpower, we say, which we're conjuring up, is what really separates the strong from the weak. It separates those who have character from those who lack character. It distinguishes between the winners, if you will, and the losers in our mind. And so we assume that we can gather that willpower. We assume that finding God's will, you see, is centered in our mind. It is centered in our will. It is centered in our determination, in our willpower. But it's not. It's centered in our heart. It's centered in our soul. It's centered where God resides. Captain Ahab in Herman Melville's Moby Dick is the classic willful character. Ahab, also known as Old Thunder, has the determination of steel. Nothing dents his resolve, not even his crew's mutinous intentions. You knock me down, I'm up again. We have... We all have a little bit of old thunder's stubbornness. Some of us have a little bit more than others, but we all have a little taste of it. Like the little boy running around the house, jumping up and down on the furniture, provoking his sister, yanking on the cat's tail, driving his mother crazy and refusing all of her admonitions. Finally, his mother is tired of it, grabs him by the shirt, sits him down on the floor and says to him, don't move a muscle. To which he replies, I, not, may, I may not be moving a muscle on the outside, but I'm still moving on the inside. That's willful. That willfulness, psychologists say, develops between the 18th and the 36th month of life. And we spend the rest of our life trying to rein it in. It's called the terrible twos for a reason. So if your son or daughter is three or older, you have already lost the battle, just telling you, and maybe the war. See, willfulness is asserting the power of our own personal kingdom over which we intend to reign. The motto of willfulness is my way or no way. Willfulness believes the lie that the path to freedom and fulfillment is through self-assertion and self-determination, through grasping and holding on and being in charge and being in control. Willfulness is an unwillingness to surrender, an unwillingness to let go, an unwillingness to give up control. By contrast, Scripture calls us to 
Willingness to willingness. The spirit of willingness is an ongoing act of surrender. The deliberate conscious decision to submit to God. This requires abandoning our self-determination and the kingdom of me. This is intentionally praying, your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. David Benner says, no one, no one voluntarily submits their will and surrenders their autonomy, except maybe for love. Only love can make us overturn, turn over the keys to the kingdom of self and willingly submit to another king from another kingdom. For God so loved his world. See, God's will cannot be separated from his kingdom. And so ultimately, we need to choose whose kingdom, which king is going to take priority in our life. You see, it's one thing to pray, your will be done on earth. It's a totally different thing to say, your will be done in and through my life. Given the sharp contrast between the two kingdoms, how can they coexist together? And the answer is, they can't. Many people have tried to plant one foot in one kingdom and another foot in another kingdom and try to get along. It doesn't work. Like Ananias and Sapphira, we pretend that we're sort of turning over the keys to our kingdom, but we want to stay just a step back, just in case. We want to keep our options open. We want to have the veto power. And the truth is, it doesn't work. We cannot make this decision on our own. Like David Benner says, no one willfully surrenders. But Jesus invites us to surrender willingly because he loves us. He invites us. He says, come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Shoulder my yoke and you'll find rest. Ask Jesus to make God's will your will. His priorities, your priorities. His heart, your heart. Only his love can transform our willfulness into willingness. Following a guide requires a high level of trust. A great guide will take you where you did not plan to go. To see things that you didn't know existed. Things beyond your imagination and expectations. When we are convinced that we have received a word from God, the only response is yes. The only response is to follow. The only response is to obey. So what is my role in discovering God's will? In finding his guidance? In discerning his leading? Willingly surrendering. Willingly surrendering. Most people also assume that God's will is primarily about behavior, that it is about their choice of vocation, their choice of marriage partner, their family size, what pleasures they're going to pursue. So once they have a spouse and once they have children, once they have their house and once they have a job, seeking God's will for most becomes less important and significant to them. And the truth is that's a very sad view of God's love. It suggests that his plans for us are really small and limited. 
God's will is not simply a behavioral code. It's not something we do or we don't do. You see, learning to will God's will begins with attending to his presence. That is, discovering God's will begins by giving God our full and complete attention. Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk who spent his entire life washing dishes and cobbling shoes in the monastery. It is reported that after 40 years of seeking nothing more than the awareness of God's presence, he would write in a letter that he was experiencing God's presence regularly. His approach to that was very simple. I look for God at all times and in all places. He knew when we love someone, we pay attention to them. He knew when we pay attention to them, our love for them grows and deepens. God's will is ultimately about our choosing a love relationship with him, that we're going to put our feet in his footprints. We're going to follow where he leads. We're going to give him our heart and our life, a choice we intentionally need to make over and over again and again. You see, choosing God is not simply a one-time experience. It is often a minute-by-minute choice of willing God's will for us and attending to his presence. Richard Rohr writes, we cannot attain the presence of God. Truth is, we're already totally in the presence of God. What's missing is simply our awareness and our attention. You see, choosing God is focusing on God by acts of attention and letting go. It is letting God into your moment and then giving that moment back to God. It is an openness to God's divine presence, and then it is consenting to his reign in your heart. It is allowing God's desire to become our desire, God's heart, our heart, God's spirit, our spirit. It is giving up and letting go. Do you trust God enough to let go and let God? Willfulness never pulls us closer to God. Letting go, willingness, always does. So what is my role in discovering God's will, in finding his guidance, in discerning his leading? Practicing his presence. His name was Inigo Lopez. He was born over 500 years ago in a little village in northern Spain. He was the youngest of 13 children. He was no model of sainthood. He was pompous. He was a womanizer. He was obsessed with winning glory on the battlefield. He ignored his father's desire that he should enter the priesthood and instead became a soldier, only to have his leg shattered by a cannonball in battle. While recovering, he requested books on romance and chivalry. But the only books they gave him were books on the love of Christ and the lives of the saints. And as he would write, he says, I eventually felt the call to the devoted life. No doubt because it was one of the very few that was left to him after his injury. But anyway, he would write a book entitled Spiritual Exercises. That book is still acknowledged as one of the best books on spiritual discernment that has ever been written. We know him better as Ignatius of Loyola. 
He is the founder of the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. But four centuries before the rise of modern psychology, Ignatius underscored the importance of our emotions in helping us discern God's will. Now remember, discerning God's will is more a matter of the heart and the soul than it is a matter of the mind. So Ignatius suggested that a core task in being able to develop a discerning heart was to learn to attend to the ways we are affected when we turn toward God or when we turn away from him. Richard Rohr says, we are always in the presence of God. But God often cloaks his grandeur for our protection. So our response to God's presence is seldom as dramatic as what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai or seldom as dramatic as Saul experienced on the road to Damascus. Typically, God's presence is subtler, more often a whisper than a bolt of lightning. And our reactions are correspondingly attenuated. St. Ignatius places our reactions in two primary categories. First, he says, there is this sense of consolation. You may have noticed in your own life, for example, when your heart is turned toward God and you're focused on his love, you have a deep sense of peace, a deep sense of well-being in your soul. When you are aware of God's presence and love, you are more inclined to be loving and compassionate toward others. When you are aware of God's grace and his truth, In your life, your soul feels far more well-nurtured. Ignatius notes that there is also an opposite set of emotions. He calls those desolation. These are the feelings that surface in our soul when we have turned away from God. We may feel more self-occupied, more negative, more drained of energy, more mildly depressed or more irritable. As we turn away from God, our soul begins to shrivel and, and it shudders. And the spiral toward death begins. The single most telltale sign of desolation is a low sense of anxiety and worry that penetrates all we do. Desolation is often a divine nudge that there is something that is not right in me. There's something not right about what I'm considering, at least for now. And sometimes it's a reminder that we have prioritized something else over the love of God in our life. For example, my apprehension about an upcoming meeting reminds me that even though I have done whatever I can to prepare, I'm choosing to take on the responsibility over something that I have absolutely no control over. By turning to God, I can gently place that meeting in his hands and surrender my most loved practice of control. Similarly, Ignatius would say, The distress that I feel when someone I respect criticizes something I have said or something I have done is primarily because I love my image of myself more than I love God. And it calls me to realign my heart once again with what God is calling me to do and to be. Consolation and desolation are often subtle. And for most of us, they seem so subjective because Truth is, we have so little control over our feelings. So as very rational people, our feelings are going to give us pause. And most have questioned Ignatius' focus on feelings. 
I mean, truth be told, we prefer to understand God's will as something we can logically and rationally discuss and most of all, debate. That is, we want to have control over it. And so we debate it in our minds. We debate it in our homes, among our friends, and we debate it in our church councils. We all know people who have rationalized their idolatry and their adultery and their greed and their narcissism because, well, you know, God wants me to be happy. God knows who I am. It's just who I am. He made me this way, you know. We're very good at rationalizing. But it's really hard to dismiss that gnawing, agging, empty feeling inside. It's a gift. See, the fact is, our emotions are often clearer clues to our heart and our soul than our cognitive inabilities. Paul says the spirit is dwelling in our soul and it gives witness to our spirit about what is true. Tim Kelly in Testament of Devotion writes, deep within us all, there is an inner sanctuary of the soul. It's amazing. It's a holy place, a divine center. It's a speaking voice to which we must continually return. Eternity is in our hearts, not in our head, in our hearts, pressing upon our time-worn lives, warming us with intimations of an astounding destiny, calling us home unto itself. So what is my role in discerning God's will, in finding his guidance, in discerning his leading? Learning to listen to our soul, the place where we know God, where he dwells most intimately with us. And then finally, God's agenda for our transformation is far more radical than ours. You see, most of us would settle for just choosing the right thing. But God wants us to choose the right way. And that requires a total heart transplant. God wants to change our choosing, not just our choice. God wants to exchange our willfulness for willingness. He wants to exchange, exchange our rationalizations for a transformed soul. Choosing God's will is choosing his life. Choosing God's will is embracing his love. Choosing God's will is following his plan for us and for his world. It is a plan for abundance, a plan for healing. It is a plan for wholeness. It is a plan for life together in his kingdom. Henry Nouwen was a priest. And he was a teacher at places like Harvard and Yale. He felt guided by God to leave academia and to spend the last decade of his life living in a community with people with severe emotional, mental, and physical disabilities. He was blessed, and he blessed many through his experience. Trevor, a person with significant mental and emotional challenges, was sent to a psychiatric facility for evaluation. And Henry Nowen called the hospital to arrange for a visit with Trevor. When the authorities found that Henry Nowen was coming, they asked him, can we have a small luncheon? Can we invite some doctors and some clergy and some PhDs to, to meet with you over lunch? And Henry said, okay, all right. Henry showed up that day. 
They took him to the golden room where the luncheon would be held. And Trevor was not there. And Henry said, where's Trevor? They said, Trevor can't come to lunch. Henry said, why not? They said, patients and staff are not allowed to have lunch together. Plus, no patient is ever allowed in the golden room. Most people, I think, would respond, okay, you're in charge, you set the rules, okay. And by nature, Henry Nowen was not a confrontational person. But the thought crossed Henry's mind, include Trevor. Trevor ought to be here this morning. So Henry had to decide, is that the voice of God? Do I say yes to it? Do I make an issue of this? That happens to Henry. The kind of thing happens to you and me as well. So Henry said, the whole purpose of my coming was to have lunch with Trevor. If Trevor can't be here for lunch, then I won't be here either. Amazingly, a way was quickly found to have Trevor attend. And he came. Everybody thought they were coming to hear Henry Nowen. They were excited that this great man was going to be there with them. People as people do postured and jostled for who would sit at the same table with Henry Nowen so that afterwards you could go home and you could say, I had lunch with Henry Nowen. All that was going on. At one point, Henry was talking to the person on his right. And he didn't notice that Trevor, who was sitting on his left, stood up. And Trevor held up his glass of Coca-Cola. And Trevor said loudly, a toast. I will now offer a toast. And everyone in the room got nervous. What was he going to say? Then Trevor, with his challenges and a room full of PhDs and clergy and doctors, started to sing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. It was an awkward moment. Here was this man with a level of challenge and brokenness no one in the room could imagine. But he was beaming. He was absolutely thrilled to be there. And so they too started singing softly at first. And then louder and then louder until doctors and PhDs and clergymen and even Henry Nowen himself were almost shouting, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. Henry went on to give his talk. But the moment that everyone remembers, the moment God spoke most clearly to the entire room and touched hearts with a memory that would last as long as they would, came from a person most of them might have said was the least likely person to speak for God. But he did. God spoke through Trevor. And they all listened. What is my role in discerning God's will? 
always choosing life. God still speaks. Jesus still leads. The Spirit still guides. The world is still being changed. People are still being blessed. God is still doing it. If you are a Jesus follower, the Spirit is in you, and you are already a part of this adventure. Our God, the redeeming, creating, judging, comforting God, is a guiding God as well. And he will guide you. And he will guide us. And he will do it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who is intimately involved in our lives, in our own personal life, in our own heart, in our own soul, but also collectively, corporately, together in the lives of families, friends, and of this faith community. Father, we long to come together around your will, around Jesus, around where you are. And so we pray this prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.